0: Funny how it be funny like
1: I'm a clown, I you like I'm a clown, like I'm a clown, like I'm
0: a clown, like I'm a clown, I'm a clown, I'm a clown. Rosebud Rosebud Rosebud. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Silver Screen Video. We have a fantastic guest for you today. As usual, this is Jonathan here with my great co-host, Jacob. Jacob, tell the listeners who our guest is this week.
2: Folks, we are so excited. We have got the one, the only, Lindsay Zalads. Uh, she is uh, a brilliant writer and critic. Uh, we talk about Agnes Varda. Um, she schools us, I should say, on Agnes Farda. Um And uh, it's a great conversation. Um, You will learn a lot. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Lindsay's great. uh, We'd love to have her back um, to talk about anything uh, Agnes Varda related or really anything in general.
0: Yeah, Lindsay was fantastic. I felt like I learned a lot about uh, Agnes Vardas, which, as I mentioned in this episode, was a huge blind spot for me. So uh, it was a really good time, uh, as you guys will learn when you listen that Lindsay knows a ton about Agnes Varda and uh, yeah, it was great. So this is continuing our all guest month here at the silver screen video. Uh, We hope you guys have been enjoying it last week with Keith Phipps, the resident Nick cage expert who was writing a book about Nick cage. Hope you guys got to listen to that episode. Um, But yeah, we're excited to bring you Lindsay and um, yeah, Jacob, do you have anything else to add before we get to it?
2: Yeah, all you all you freeloaders out there, you know, you fo- maybe you follow Lindsay on Twitter and you think, wow, Lindsay's great. I'm going to listen to her on this podcast. Well, first of all, you're welcome, all right? You're welcome that it was our idea to have Lindsay on to talk about Agnes Varda uh, and, you know, for you to get, get this free, ad-free content. But you know how you can support the show? You can go to patreon.com slash video. And not only can you support our uh, our valiant endeavor that we've got going here, where we get really smart people on to talk about movies, uh, but we also uh, will give you access to our Silver Screen After Dark uh, podcast feed. That's a uh, one bonus episode a week. Uh, a little bit, a little bit. We let our hair down a little bit. It's a little bit uh, more relaxed than the typical, you know, guest episodes that we have. Uh, where me and John are trying to impress the smart people that we have on our podcast. Uh, that's where we, uh, we shoot the shit. We talk about what we've been watching. We usually talk about, you know, one movie a week. Um, I go on rants about uh, Clint Eastwood and how amazing Richard Jewell is, et cetera, et cetera. Jonathan makes me watch bad Denzel movies, uh, so on and so forth. So if you're interested in that, check it out, patreon.com slash silver screen video. Um, Really the only the only movie podcast you need to be subscribing to I
0: think. That is true. Most things you said were true except um I'll give you bad Denzel movies but he's never given a bad performance. So
2: well, obviously I didn't say yeah. Denzel was bad but the man I'm has just made making some sure.
0: Uh but guys yeah the link's going to be in the show notes for all that stuff too as well so make sure you check it out. We'd love to have you uh, we appreciate the people who have already joined the Silver Screen After Dark family just helps us keep the lights on and allows us to uh, kind of make plans for the future. So what else we want to do and ways to expand and uh, just bring you guys more good content. So aside All from right. that, uh, we ready to send it to Lindsay.
2: Yeah, let's get to it.
0: Okay, guys, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Lindsay's the lads.
2: Folks, our guest this week is a very talented writer and cultural critic whose work you can find in the New York Times, at The Ringer, uh, places like Film Comment and Pitchfork, um, and really anywhere you can find uh, good writing about music, movies, or anything pop culture related. Lindsay Zolodz is here. Hi, Lindsay.
1: Hi. Hi, Lindsay. Welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me.
2: Yeah, today we're going to talk about, uh, and we just had a discussion about how to pronounce uh pronounce her name i think we've been going with agnes varda because we're just a couple of hicks uh from the south but Lindsay has enlightened us uh it is agnes varda Uh, agnes yes agnes yeah so today we're gonna we're gonna be talking about (laughs) miss varda uh and uh we're gonna be covering a few of her movies we've talked about um uh, the Gleaners and I quite a bit um, with uh, director Camille Shushani as one of her inspirations. But we're going to be talking about uh, La Pointe Court, uh, Cleo from 5 to 7, Le Bonheur, uh, Vagabond, and Beaches of Agnes. So, Lindsay, if you could just get us going, tell us a little bit about your um, your relationship and kind of your history and how you maybe discovered uh, Agnes's work.
1: Yeah, I... so. I found out about her in college and got really into her films, which now was 14 years ago. I think um, I went to, I did a like degree in film production and film studies and English. Cause I couldn't decide what I wanted to do with my life back then. So sure. just piled on um, all the class. So there was kind of like all sorts of, film and criticism and also filmmaking kind of in my orbit. And and I, um, you know, came across her work at some point when I was like 20 and just getting really into the French new wave and being really into like feminism and women and film of which there were not that many (laughs) that I was coming across in my studies. Um, So she was just, very interesting to me from that aspect. And then once I started getting into her films and watching them, I just was really blown away by the breadth of her entire career. Um and she was very much still active at that time, like was active until pretty much her death, um, you know, put out her last film, I think in twenty seventeen. Um, so just this huge body of work that I was really excited to dig into and uh, something that's that has been really striking to me over the past five years in particularly is how suddenly accessible her films have become like it was very hard to track down a lot of her films when I was in college and I did because I was an Anya super fan um, early on but like I had to borrow VHSs from the interlibrary consortium from a different college to like see (laughs) one thing, the other doesn't, or um, Jacotte, which is her film for Jacques Demy, which we can talk about a little bit. Um, But it was really, you know, I kind of got (laughs) the Varda bug and was just finding a way to see as many of her films as I possibly could, which I think... The, the first sort of release that made it a little bit more accessible was the Criterion box set of four of her films that I think came out when I was in college, um, which I think has pretty much all of the films we're going to be talking about in depth today. Um, but yeah, it's been really interesting to see how she's almost become, I don't want to say like a mainstream Figure, But she really, especially towards the end of her life, I think, ascended to this status, at least in America, among kind of people just getting into film and French film and um, that she really became this touchstone that was frankly surprising to me as someone who, you know, got very into her at a time when nobody was really talking about her, um, either within you know, my schooling or or among my friends. Like it was not, it was a very different time um, to kind of be an Anya super fan, as I say. So yeah, it's, there's just a lot to dig into with her. And again, I think body of work feels like the right term and just looking over the long haul because she was so, consistently productive for decades and um so there was a lot i think there was just a lot to dig out and it was it was fun to to seek that out but now you can pretty much find her entire filmography um on the criterion channel which is awesome but also would have saved me a lot of um trips to various libraries (laughs) in my 20s so
0: (laughs) yeah it's it's crazy when i think about the criterion channel and like there's so many films that are just accessible now that I feel mm-hmm. like I, I find myself taking for granted because if you go back 10 years or whatever, like it's, it's really non-existent. So it's just nuts that uh you have so much of these, these films that have been restored and things like that. And they're just there. Like it's, it's really, it's actually kind of uh, brilliant.
1: Yeah. It's, it's mind blowing actually for, especially looking at her films and just remember again, I had to watch like, some of these films that I now can just put on my Roku or something, I had to go to like a different college library to watch them in a basement on a VHS. And that was something that I did, you know, <laughs> within like 15 years ago. And I sound very old all of a sudden. But <laughs> kids, let me tell you, it it was well, wild. Now, it's it's interesting, interesting, though. I mean, that, we'll never know.
2: oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: I was gonna say these kids today will never know the uh, life, life before Netflix and streaming and constant availability. It's true,
2: uh, <laughs> but it's interesting though because like there are like certain like filmmakers for whom that is still the case in mm-hmm. in a way. Like, I mean, obviously, I guess you can buy DVDs of some of these people, but I remember, I mean, last year I was trying to watch some uh, Gia Zhangke movies. I don't know how to quite say his name. But the only like availability that I found was I could, like you said, like go watch it in a basement at Columbia. Like not, yeah. not like check it out. Like I literally had to go just sit in a, a specific room and they would put it on for me. And I was just like, you know what? I don't I don't think I want to watch it that bad.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the Claire Denis films were like that in the States too, until the sort of recent push to now they're pretty much most of them are on the Criterion Channel or was really hard to find like outside of a, a screening a public screening and now you know criterion has put that out and it's definitely you know the i i would rather have the accessibility of course um sure. but there is something kind of like romantic and exciting and just fun about having to track down this stuff like it it makes it meaningful in a different way too not to Totally opine the the old days, but there was something you know fun about having to you know oh there's this one film of Varda's that I haven't seen from the 70s like how can I get this and and it made the process of discovering her um, her films you know kind of take on this meaning for me um, that became this whole big thing for me in college so. Um, you know, I'm I'm really glad that a lot more people can can access these films now in the states. But I think, you know, there was there was something fun about the process of of really digging into into her filmography too.
2: Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, my, my I I was thinking about it for this episode, and I think my take is I I think she is the most famous. Um, uh. Uh, new wave french new wave filmmaker at this point i mean Mm. the only the only i think competition for her would really be godard who people don't seem to be that interested um in like on a like a fairly mainstream level um and especially since a lot of godard stuff from say 1970 to like i don't know 2011 is just completely (laughs) unavailable anywhere Mm -hmm. whereas like with her work i mean I think, And I think it culminated in the Criterion box set that got released this year, the mm-hmm. uh, the Complete Films. I mean, when that was released, I mean, Criterion had only done that with two other filmmakers, Bergman and Kurosawa. So, I mean, it's – I don't know. I don't think it's stretching much at all to say that she's, like, eclipsed really all of them, uh, all, all of her French New Way. I mean, I mean, Truffaut. I mean, who's talking about Truffaut at this point, you know? Yeah.
1: But, yeah, that's yeah. fascinating because, like, we can – kind of dig into this with the Clio conversation too, but she I don't I don't know that I even consider her traditionally a new wave filmmaker. I right. she maybe one or two of her films kind of could be within that conversation, but a large percentage of even the movies she's best known for now were later in her career or were these very, very um just aesthetically different films from what we think of as the new wave aesthetic. Whereas like Godard at least made a ton of movies in the sixties that, that can kind of slot into that, um, that really fit within what we understand as the new wave. Whereas with Varda, I think there's maybe three, if you're being generous, um, the point court, uh, Cleo and happiness. And then, and I think you could even make an argument for one or two of those that they don't quite fit within to the new wave. So it's, and I think she would, I mean, I don't want to, don't want to speak for her, but (laughs) I I don't think that new wave label was every something that she was particularly comfortable with or embraced. um, Right. For the most part too.
2: Well, let's, um, let's go ahead and jump into it. I, um, for a director episodes, I normally give a little bit of uh, biographical background. I just want to, mentioned some, some notable things, um, uh, that I, uh, found just on, just like Googling her essentially. Um, I, well, I found this interesting, uh, during world war II, she lived on a boat in the South of France, um, in the, the town where, uh, La Pointe court was filmed, uh, which I thought was interesting. And then she was relocated, uh, to Paris. relocated. She moved back to Paris with her parents. Um, And she described it as truly excruciating. Uh, She says, it was a frightful memory of my arrival in this gray, inhumane, sad city. Which is, what what a way to describe Paris after the war, you know? And then she uh, she went to school at the Sorbonne. Uh, She didn't get along with her fellow students. And she described her classes as, quote, stupid, antiquated, abstract, and scandalously unsuited for the lofty needs one had at that age. Wow. Um, so I love her. I love her just kind of unromantic bleakness about yes. Paris after the war. Go I, I off, Agnes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, so she was a professional. Um, she was an artistic photographer in the sense that she she was interested in composition and obviously did it. But she was also like a professional photographer for years before she made her first film. Um, Similar to like Stanley Kubrick, like she did weddings, she did like photo spreads for like magazines and was the official photographer of some theatrical companies, et cetera. And this kind of leads us into talking about her cinema and exactly what you were talking about, Lindsay. Um, She claims that she only saw 20 films by the age of 25. And so she approached film from like a literary standpoint, as opposed to the like, rampant cynophilia of the other French new wave people, you know, like Godard and, uh, and Truffaut. And I, I don't know. I, I think that's interesting how she came from like a, she, she's approaching it from a completely different standpoint. Whereas, I mean, you watch breathless and, you know, Godard is clearly only interested in, in movies really, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but yeah, that leads us into La Pointe court. So yeah, Lindsay, can you tell us about uh, your experience with La Pointe court and kind of um, what your take on it is now?
1: Yeah, so this, so I think it was released in 1954, I believe, which right. noticeably five years before Breathless came out, so which within the span of the new wave is a long time. This is pretty much considered like a pre-proto new wave movie, and I think this is the one that kind of earned her this nickname of like either the, the mother, the godmother of the French new wave, which people have pointed out she's, I think she is only two years older than Godard, So it's, she's not really like the right. mother of these other filmmakers, but she basically got there first, you know, she made um, before Tufo or Goddard or Chabrol or any of them pretty much um, considered new wave. She, she was the first one to make um, a full length film and it's a really interesting movie. It's, you know, I think of it as more of like an experiment than a fully realized um, masterwork or anything. Like it, it feels, but it still is really um, singular too. It's essentially telling two stories at once, which she has said, you know, to your point of her being inspired more by literature than cinephilia, um, she took the structure from the William Faulkner novel *The Wild Palms*, which I think is interestingly enough the one that is also quoted in *Breathless*. Um, oh, okay. So it wouldn't. There's a there's a quote that they in the long scene in the middle of *Breathless* um, when they're in the the hotel room. I think that they the quote about like between. Misery and nothing. Like I would choose misery. I think that that's from the Wild Palms. Um, okay. It's from definitely from a Faulkner novel. It must so. I it would not surprise me if like Godard came to Faulkner <laughs> through, right. through this movie. Though I don't know for sure. Um, but yeah, oh, sorry,
2: not to interrupt you. I just pulled it up and it says Patricia claims to prefer to take grief rather than nothing.
1: Aha! Uh-huh. So misery, uh, grief. Yeah. I'll, I'd I'd probably choose the nothing, but yeah, I think so too. <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> that's just me. Um, yeah, so it's you know it's sort of interweaving these two stories between um, this couple that is seems pretty doomed in their relationship um, and and seems like they are perhaps their marriage is coming apart, the relationship is coming apart, and then um, contrasting almost this documentary like. Footage of this port town that, like you said, she um, lived for a part of her youth on a boat, and water and beaches, etc., are very important uh, recurring themes in her cinema, which will kind of um, address that throughout the years too. But I think what's interesting for me about this film is the way that the combination of fiction and documentary does kind of serve as a harbinger for what was to come in the more, the ways that she kind of fused those two things together in later films, like, like Vagabond, um, like the Gleaners and I, where she's kind of almost inventing this hybrid form between um, nonfiction and fiction or between essay and um, documentary, just It it was the kernel of that idea was there from the start in this film, even if it's those two things feel more purposely separated in this movie where it's it's there's a very clear delineation between like this is the story of the couple and then this is the story of the town. Um, But they're still sort of weaving together, you know, within the same film
2: right uh john what did you think about la Pointe court i know you mentioned you mentioned off pod something to me you felt very strongly about this couple in this movie
0: <laughs> well i uh i thoroughly enjoyed it I, when i when i watched it i didn't really pay attention to when things came out so i was surprised to find out this was her first feature because it's really well done and uh i uh I I I found the subplot with the with the village people and the shellfish much more interesting than the marriage because both of them seemed so miserable, like they were very uninterested in fixing anything. And if that's the point of the movie, I guess I missed it. But the the subplot was way more fun to me than the actual couple and what they were going through. I don't I don't know if that was the way it was supposed to be, but I because I, because I, I enjoyed the movie thoroughly, but uh. Just the the overall ambiance of of the village and and their festivals and what they're doing and the jousting and all that. I
1: was
0: (laughs) yeah, I was I was into that way more. And the fact that we get to kind of revisit that with the beaches of Agnes, I was super excited to kind of see her talk a little more about her experience with the village and like having these villagers. Like it was just it was a very unique experience.
1: Mm Mm-hmm yeah i i agree like i find the the sort of documentary parts of it a lot more compelling and there's something almost like bergman like about the the couple scenes like there actually are there are some really striking shots where she's kind of framing their faces in a way that reminds me of how bergman would do it in persona which was obviously like a decade plus after this um so like she's always kind of has that photographer's eye for framing. I think here with the couple shots it can feel a little stilted and more like static photographs rather than cinema. Um but then within the documentary stuff I think she really captures the movement and the vibrancy of of the characters around there. So I would I would agree with that.
0: It's interesting you say that about Bergman because there is a scene I'm sure you guys will know the shot that I'm talking about when he is facing her. Yeah, and you see both sides. I thought that like that was very perso- like Persona is a movie we've talked about on the podcast before, and I had mixed feelings about it. But the the camera movement and the framing of it, um, yeah, I, I could definitely see um, it being Bergman like.
2: Yeah, I, I I too was really um, struck by the kind of like neo realist. Um, like elements to it. Um, even though I read that she, she, she claims that she, which, um, I don't know why I said claims. I mean, she says she's never, um, saw, see, saw the like neorealist, uh, work of, you know, the Italians, you know, like bicycle thieves and stuff. Um, when she, when she made this, which is understandable. I mean, she, it doesn't sound like she was even really that interested in movies before she started making movies. Um, but I, I was interested about the comparison between something like this and Hiroshima, Mon Amour, the later uh, Alan René movie. I don't know, Lindsay. What, what do you feel like as, as a comparison for that? Because I read conflicting things. I read that that René kind of stole the idea, or maybe like thought that he was like improving on like a similar idea that she had.
1: Yeah, yeah. and I know that they worked together. I think he he was an editor. Was it on this film? Do you know, I she yeah, she did, yeah, yeah. So, and I'm not a huge Ellen Rene fan, I, I must admit, especially like the his earlier uh, stuff. So, I don't know that I would call Hiroshima Monomora an improvement on Sparta, <laughs> right? Shots fired, um, but you know, obviously, the subject matter is really different. I guess I of can course. see like, formally um, how those might be be sort of similar, but yeah, I think what just strikes me is how how many years before all of it, like I think Hiroshima and Monomore was 59 as well, so this is still coming like five years before all that and before a lot of these new wave filmmakers um, even made their first feature, which you know in a within that period in the 60s like there's 5 years is a long time in in the right. Godard span of the 60s that's like 10 films later for him or something right. so i think it is just striking to me and i i was watching a video of um her daughter Rosalie Varda talking about um at the there was a retrospective last year at the um, at Lincoln Center and she was kind of introducing some of the films and she said that a lot of the Kaido Cinema critics um, didn't like this film when it came out La Pointe Court and Rosalie was kind of suggesting that there was almost a little jealousy there that this who is this woman you know that that got to make her film before these guys did and perhaps were kind of speaking in a similar vocabulary of what they wanted to do with their films. So I think there that, you know, she was not a sort of chummy part of the group, the way that like, she, you know, as we've pointed out, she wasn't a cinephile. She wasn't a critic before a filmmaker. She was coming from this both photography and kind of classical art background as well. Um, and I think has always been something of an outsider in all of the groups that people have tried to lump her into to the benefit of her larger body of work, I think, because it doesn't really fit into any one particular category.
2: Right. Yeah. And I actually uh, saw this quote by uh, Andre Bazin, who is like the older, kind of like the old, older school uh, du cinema critics, um, Uh, And it's interesting. I think there was a split there. You know, the younger, Mm -hmm. the younger men, Truffaut and René and Godard, maybe were kind of jealous. um, Whereas Bazin, he has this great quote about La Pointe Court. He says, "Um, there's a total freedom to this style, which produces the impression so rare in the cinema, that we are in the presence of a work that obeys only the dreams and desires of its auteur, with no other external obligations. Uh, So I can see how, you know, Bazin would write something like that and all the young Cahiers critics would just be furious, you know? Yeah. So let's roll into, let's roll into probably her most famous uh, movie, I think, uh, Cleo from five to seven from 1962. Yeah, I think this would probably be the most new wavy uh, of her movies. But again, like you said, she always separates herself out from you know, from any movement that she's uh, a part of. Uh, So what about Cleo from five to seven? Was this the first Agnes Varda movie that you'd seen? Because I feel like that is the case with most people, that this is the first one um, that anybody sees.
1: It must have been, I think that it was, but I don't have a specific memory of like seeing it the first time. Right. Um, Though. Yeah. But it's, I've, seen this movie so many times since then and I feel like I'm constantly picking up new things about it and um it's just so sort of it feels effortless in a way and and really unique still uh the formal structure is obviously so interesting of of supposedly following this character in real time Um, although the film is only 90 minutes so it's basically, you know, clear up from 5.30 to 7, maybe. <laughs> right. Uh, and, you know, she was sort of, I think the, the formal structure of these, this, this is her second um, full-length film, and just how inventively she was thinking about form in these days. So to go from, like, a first film that kind of tells these two stories that are not connected and tries to weave them together to trying to make this film that is contrasting the idea of objective and subjective time. Um, and literally kind of on the screen, every other scene, it comes up and like tells us what time it is. In, and there's clocks everywhere as she's walking through the streets of Paris and um, you know, trying to make this point about the way time passes um, and our perception of it. And how time passes in film, too, um, which is often not, you know, is very artificial and and yet adheres to certain rules that we have. Um, it just, I think, formally, the ideas that she had, even early on, were just so interesting and kind of enduring, um, which is part of why, and, and so simple, too, at the same time. It's their
2: uh yeah yeah i mean for any listeners who may not be aware um yeah cleo from five to seven is uh basically about a woman who uh, is awaiting the results of um a a test to find out whether or not she has cancer and it's um you know like Lindsay said it's it's like cleo from 5 p.m to 7 p.m even though the movie's only an hour and a half um john what did you think about cleo uh from five to seven
0: I, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit, um, about it being similar to breathless. And I think that if you're going to, if we're going to make that comparison, like for anybody that would, I think that this is the superior film. If you, if you have them head to head, I found it much more interesting and just everything that was happening. I just enjoyed a bit more than breathless. I really loved what she did with the camera. There was some really nice, like Mm -hmm. POV shots in the taxi Uh, the switch from uh, black and white to color with the cards in the beginning. Hmm. Um, There was just some really, there was some really cool shit she did that, uh, that I I just kind of really pulled you in for the most part. I'm not a fan of this type of like, just relaxed. I'm just going to spend a day with this person going through their life kind of thing, which is why I didn't really enjoy breathless that much, but, um, this actually just did a little more than that. So yeah, I did enjoy it. It was, it's probably my least favorite, uh, of the, of the five, but that's not to say I didn't like it. It's just to say the other four, I just enjoyed a bit more. I'm curious as
2: to your guys' thoughts on, you know, I, I read an essay about, uh, Cleo from five to seven in, uh, I think reverse shot. And it was talking about how Cleo kind of changes throughout the course of her, wandering around Paris and like maybe how at the end of the movie, she is um, kind of more serious and more, you know, thoughtful and maybe more mature that it's almost kind of like a coming of age. And I I think that is, I'm not sure that's the case. I don't know. Lindsay, do you see the movie that way?
1: I think I see it more as like she's moving from being an object to a subject uh, in this gradual way, which, um, you know, there's a lot. Of, so Cleo, we should say, is, is this sort of frivolous pop singer at the beginning. She's right. famous and um, really into her own appearance and her clothes and how she appears to people. We do get this internal monologue um, kind of running through the film where she you know, in the beginning, she's kind of saying like, I love to look at myself. (laughs) I love, you know, she's thinking a lot about the way that she appears to other people. And I think the journey for her is more, um, about, you know, becoming an actually like embodied person who doesn't, isn't necessarily thinking about her image 24 seven and is, is thinking more about how she's feeling and, um, Having this sort of interiority, and so I think with Varda and with a lot of the films that we're talking about in particular, I think her approach to character is sometimes a little bit more um, like symbolic or allegorical than we think of in a lot of movie characters. Like I don't, um, and I think this is most true for the the next film we're going to talk about, Happiness. But I don't necessarily think of Cleo as this like really flesh and blood real person that you would know I think she is a little bit more of a construct within the film Mm -hmm. um but and and that the film is more about how we're looking at her and how the camera is looking at her how we are conceiving of this character rather than trying to make her feel like this you know hyper realistic person that we might know um and I think so much of Varda's films are about looking at things and how we interact with our environment, how we interact with images around us. Um, so, yeah, I think of it more as, like, a subject-object transformation than any kind of thing about, like, she's coming into her own or or anything how we would talk about, like, a real person. <laughs> because I right. think that Varda... Um, never lets you forget that you're watching a film that you're that these are characters even when she is playing her own character in the later documentaries um, it's she is very aware of how characters constructed in a film so um, yeah that's that's what I see the transformation as and there's obviously so many shots with mirrors in this film and kind of reflective surfaces of the the shop windows and things like that there's a I love the shot when she's in the cafe in the beginning and there's a mirror behind where she's sitting and it's and next to her is this couple that's having a conversation and she's kind of eavesdropping eavesdropping on them but the mirror behind her is just reflecting back her own image at the camera so it's kind of this like depicting her own sort of narcissism in that moment that she's the mirror is only reflecting back her whereas other people are out there living their lives not not as cognizant of like what they're looking like and what their appearance is um so it's just another way that i think the her framing as coming up through being a photographer is really quite striking in this film
2: right yeah so, i am um... oh sorry go ahead john
0: well, I was gonna say I, I agree with that. That's kind of the way I, I took it as well. It's not necessarily a traditional coming of age like we would like we would see in a film like in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, but it's more of like an inner reflection. I got it. And that cafe scene was great. I, I know what the one you're talking about. And it was it was really well done. And um, and that's just kind of like we saw her slowly mature. And that's why I like the end of it so much, because. When she meets that guy and like things kind of, things kind of start to click a little bit, and it and it almost does feel like she's taking ownership a bit more than when we first were introduced to her.
1: Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like even once she, you know, comes of age or whatever we're going to call the transformation, she doesn't seem like a fun person to hang right. Like you don't, no. there's <laughs> she seems like a downer the entire time and, and kind of awful even in the beginning. Um, you know, the the people around her seem a lot more just interesting and and like people you'd actually want to spend time with. Um, which and I, I think the new the other new wave film or the Godard film at least that this movie reminds me of the most is Viva Savi, which is one of my favorite Godards. And, you know, kind of also that's also a film that is Treating the character at its center as as sort of this deconstructed image or object that we're seeing, um, and and really making the artifice of the structure of the film um, at the forefront of what we're seeing. But I I also think there is a lot more sort of warmth and fluidity to the way that Varda tells a story like that than Godard, where it's like. You know the the deconstructed aspect of it with Godard is always at the forefront. The form is kind of at the forefront um, of the emotions, and I think that is a totally valid way to make a film. And I think that's often his aim. But it feels like a way in which they're different. That they're just there's a different feeling to this movie than than what the kind of fragmented nature of of what we think of traditionally as French New Wave.
2: Well, I want to move on to happiness, but I, you bring up Viva Savi because this is something that we've, we've talked about quite a bit, um, on, uh, on, we did a good, an episode on Godard. And I, I think this is one of my favorite moments in, in movies, uh, you know, period, which is maybe a cliche to say, but, um, is the moment, cause you know, you, you, like you talked about in Viva Savi, it's like, um, you know, it, it's, it's. Th- there's basically like, wait, do I have the right movie in mind? That's the, Viva Sevilla is the one where she uh, is. It's the 12, 12 episodes. It's the one where she's watching Joan of Arc, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah,
2: yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I, I like had like a little mini meltdown of like, Oh my God, do I have the wrong movie? Um, <laughs>
1: there's, there's so many good arts. So. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. The, um, the scene where she's watching Joan of Arc and it, it's so interesting that you say that and like, we don't really get psychological realism from kind of either of these portraits of Cleo Mm -hmm. or um, Anna Karina in, in Viva Savi. But the one moment that Godard kind of lets us in and lets us experience, you know, a real emotion uh, is when she is watching Joan of Arc and being moved by the images on screen. And it's like this kind of like fascinating mirror effect where she is identifying with, um, an emotion from a film and that in turn moves us because after all, we are watching movies to feel things, you know? Um mm-hmm. I don't know. Is there a moment like that in Cleo that, that you feel compares where we do kind of get close to her as kind of like a psychologically or like emotionally um kind of realistic moment? Or do you feel like it's kind of all at a distance in a way?
1: I think the, the most sort of conventionally moving shot is the very last shot of the film when they're kind of I love that shot of it's a two shot of her and this soldier that she meets that is kind of the final person to really um, like unlock whatever's going on inside of her and they're kind of like it almost reminds me of the the last shot in The Graduate where they're kind of like looking at each other like what now and looking between themselves and then at the camera and um, having these very subtle emotions pass across their faces like I I really like the ending but I think it the feeling behind that shot only goes to show how how much that is not a part of the rest of the film like you don't get you know this sort of moment of intense emotional catharsis that would happen if this were a Hollywood film made around the same time, or made any time, pretty much. Um, It does, it treats Cleo with a sense of detachment um, that, again, I think it's, the film is more about the structure and the way that the film is unfolding rather than the particular character at its center. Like it is, in some ways a meditation on fame and femininity and, and things like that. But you also get a sense that you could follow any of the people in the film for two hours or 90 minutes and and have a, a film that has a similar feel to it. It's, you know, it's about it's about Paris as much as it is about her too. And, and kind of sure. the, the role of the city. It was, I felt, I think more than any, moment in the film that made me emotional it made me miss just like cities <laughs> and right, right. days days that kind of go off on weird tangents and going to on a bunch of errands and and just things really but all like that that we can't do right now so right um yeah
2: yeah no i um okay well speaking of speaking of detached <laughs> boy, yeah. have we got the movie for you um <laughs> Uh I, I've been mispronouncing it, I'm sure Le Bon Hure, just based on the, the criterion uh uh title, but uh happiness from nineteen sixty five. Um boy oh boy, detached is not the word um for what this movie is. I, I feel like I need like Like when you when we were emailing back and forth, and you were like, "Actually, I did my thesis on this movie." I was like, "Thank God!" Like, I need somebody to explain this to me. Like, I'm a child. Um, Okay,
0: yeah, because this was this was insanely bizarre. Like, I I just keep waiting for, especially after um, spoiler alert, but after after she dies, I'm just like, "Well, what's going to happen now?" Because nothing. It was so bizarre. I don't. So yeah, I I too am hoping you can explain. Um, a little bit more about what she's trying to do in this movie.
2: Well, so let me let me outline the, the, the plot real quick for our listeners, yeah. um, just to kind of say what a strange movie this is. Um, uh, so so basically, there's a guy and his wife, and he's, they're in a very happy relationship, um, and, or it appears very happy, and it continues appearing happy. And he starts an affair with another woman, not because he's unhappy, but because it will just add more additional happiness onto his life. <laughs> And so his wife asks him, hey, why are you so extra happy lately? And he tells her, and they have sex, and then he falls asleep. This is like out in the countryside. Uh, Turns out she has drowned, and she is being fished out of a lake. Uh, Was it a suicide? Was it an accident? Who can really say? And then he basically looks up the woman that he was having an affair with, uh, marries her, and they continue on. And the bizarre thing about this movie, I feel like, is there's no drama there's no shoe that ever drops. And, you know, I I kept thinking like, Oh, well, like the visual palette is very sunny and very beautiful and very happy. And I was like, is this irony? But the irony never kicks in the, you know, it's, 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 it's almost like the it's, it's played without tongue in cheek. This is, it's very straight laced. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Lindsay, help help us out here.
0: It almost starts off like a Disney type movie. Like right. you're in the park and there's yeah. bright colors and music and it's whimsical. And they are like, I'm digging this. Like, this is a cool, nice, calm setting. Like it seems like a happy family. And it, yeah, it's just, it's really weird. Yeah. yeah Lindsay enlighten us.
1: <laughs> okay. I'll try. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think this is one of her weirdest movies. Um, which on the surface it doesn't, it seems like I love the description of it being sort of a Disney movie, like even the way that the people are dressed in these very pastoral outfits and these bright colors, like it seems just almost like this utopian eudenic paradise. And I feel like by the end, it's almost this like domestic horror film. Like there's something really oh, okay. terrifying about it to me. And I think the key scenes for me in this movie is that there's a really interesting montage at the beginning and at the end of the the wife so he we should say too like he has this mistress who he ends up sort of just slotting her into the wife role at the end and you see this montage where um, at the beginning the first wife Therese I think is her name um, is doing the housework and it's all very like almost like pop art. Um, aesthetic, beautiful to look at, but at the same time, she she's doing a lot more work than him in the family in every aspect. Like he's he's kind of chilling for most of the time, and she's picking up the slack, raising their children and right. um, doing all the chores and things like that. So you get these montages um, where we see both of the wife characters doing the same sort of domestic labor, and they they even kind of look alike they're both blonde they have slight differences about them but the you know by the by the end after the wife has died and he's you know essentially made his mistress into his wife we see her just going through the exact same motions and as the the wife who died under these mysterious circumstances i think it was a suicide but you varda leaves it open enough that you could kind of read it either way and and we don't We certainly don't know really anything about the wife's interiority and her emotions or how she, you know, she's a very opaque character. Um, So I really, I think she's making a lot of observations about gender roles in this film that also feel pretty ahead of their time. Like, I think in some ways this film kind of reminds me of Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dielman, but this is also coming more than a decade or about exactly a decade before that film comes out. Um, so Mm -hmm. another instance of Varda being pretty ahead of the curve um, politically and aesthetically. But yeah, I I think there's just a lot of depictions in this movie subtly about, you know, kind of the men's sphere and the women's sphere. And he works in this, um, he's a carpenter and he works in this, um, Space where you know there's all these like photos of Bridget Bardot on the <laughs> that they've pasted up and these <laughs> centerfold ladies and they're just talking about women in this way and also like not working as hard as the wives seem to be. I mean, it is worth pointing out that Varda was a mother at the like she um, her first child Rosalie uh, was she had her and then. Uh, raised her as a single mother for the first couple years of her life before Varda got together with Jacques Demy, another French New Wave luminary. Um, but this is a moment when you know not only is she the only woman making films in the as a French New Wave filmmaker, but she. I think there's a there's a depiction of motherhood in this film and the work that goes into it the sort of unsung domestic labor that feels very interesting and perhaps kind of personal um when you look at where she was in, in her life at that point.
2: Right. Yeah. The Jean Delman, uh comparison, I, to be, to be honest with you, I did not want to make it because I was like, is this going to show that I like only know like one, like, fe- like feminist film in existence, you know, like, uh i'll let it slide no okay <laughs> but like but like yeah like i i the comparison i think is, is as apt but it's also like um i feel like it's like jean this is gonna sound like so like hollywood studio like hack but like this is like jean delman as made by like douglas sirk you know oh like yeah
1: woodwatch like that sounds very up my alley but
2: <laughs> right right yeah and that's that, that sounds like this movie frankly um, Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, okay, that, uh, like, I'm not, like, being, like, I'm not kidding at all, that literally helps me kind of understand, like, kind of what this movie is going for, because I, I legit did not know how to take it, I was like, is this, like, some kind of, like, you know, like, Lynchian horror that I'm watching, and it's just, like, never coming to the surface, or, like, you know, I, I don't know, it was just such a, it, it's it's one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen, to be honest with you, like, wow. the I love the, that <laughs> yeah like the, the the just the fact that there's no drama and there's no like there's mm-hmm. no other shoe that ever drops it's just such a wild viewing experience to be like oh cool so nothing happened we're just we're just keeping on going he's just plugging in the other wife you know it's wild
1: yeah
0: well I uh, I know we have two other movies to talk about but I, I do want to say so I agree with you about like it being a little ahead of its time about how it like it deals with gender norms because you get the idea from the movie. That he is just expecting her to be okay, mm. but like with the fact that he's being unfaithful, and they're married, uh-huh. and she even and she even says, "Well, no, because we're we're married. Like I love you, and if it was the other way, obviously things would have gone completely different." He just expected her to be so accepting of what he was doing, right. and and I do I do lean towards it was a suicide as well. I think it was like a combination of like a broken heart and she just kind of let it happen. Like that, that's how I have it in my head. Yeah. And when you, when you look at it, at what happens at the end, I do see like, cause how you say like a domestic horror film, because it did kind of get a little step pretty mm-hmm. because she mm-hmm. just, she just steps right into the role and it's like, kids, we're back at the park and yeah,
1: your you will mom noticed the difference. <laughs> um, new mommy. <laughs>
0: But uh, I, I think the, the biggest thing, well, just the last thing is she is super like happy, and, and I, I like I love her documentaries, uh, Agnes Varda, and I, I love like her as a person. She seems so interesting and kind, and that's why it's so hard for me to kind of wrap my head around this movie, because the message I get from it is anyone is irreplaceable does love even really exist the way we think it does? Hmm. Like, and I hate, like, I, I guess I hate thinking that because she seems so nice and so just <laughs> overall, like a good person. It's like, no, I can't believe that she didn't really believe in, in true love. And honestly, if you look at like the beaches of, of Agnes, like you you don't get the idea she does it. She's incredibly heartbroken about her husband. Mm-hmm. Like, So I don't know. It's just really like a weird juxtaposition that I just can't shake about what, what she is and what I think this movie is kind of saying. Yeah.
1: I'm really, I'm glad that this movie got under your guys' skin as as much as it did, because it makes me love it even more. Like it, I think again, I, I did a lot of research on this film in particular um, when I was kind of in my Varda phase in college. And it's, I think in a lot, of, I'm, I'm surprised by the sort of, I don't want to say popularity of this one. Cause I don't think it has like as much um, of a following as Cleo, but I just think it's so weird and so strange. And there's so many different ways that you can read it. Like it's so unsettling too, but I think it kind of, like I'm always fascinated to hear when people watch this movie for the first time and how they take it, um, Cause yeah, it's it's really weird, and I also feel like the lead actor looks like Bill Hader in a way that <laughs> really creeps me out too.
2: Well, I want to say <laughs> but, I think I think just before we move on, I think one formal element of the movie that contributes to that kind of weirdness is the fact that like you can't really attribute any malice to the guy because not because he seems like a good guy, but because he seems like an idiot yeah like you can't like you know what i mean like you can't he doesn't seem like a villain because he just seemed he's like a proto like himbo or something like he just <laughs> totally yeah he just seems like just a dumb as a rock and he's just kind of like yeah yeah i'm having an affair yeah like he's too stupid to even like not tell his wife he's having an affair it's, yeah
1: that i think what you know i've seen this film a bunch of times but the, this particular time watching it like that the scene where he is sort of not even confessing the affair just being like i'm having an affair isn't it awesome it means right. like i have more love now to give around it plays as funny to me in this really dark ironic way like i was laughing at his explanation because it's just so absurd but i think it's like i think ultimately it's a movie about you know the cliche of like wanting to have it all and and can women have it all like this is a man who literally wants it all is like I want both of these relationships. There's a lot of like times in the film where he's literally like, I want everything, and that means more happiness for me. Um, whereas like the women around him cannot have it both ways. He thinks right. that he can, and I think the wife's suicide, if that's how you read it, is ultimately like the only way she can say to him like, you cannot have both of these things. But right. she's a total enigma throughout the film. And I think that's that's maybe the part that is kind of challenging. I think like Cleo, it's hard to identify. Like these don't feel like fully flesh and blood characters as much as they do like these really weird constructs that she's using to say something. And But it still, for me at least, like really works and doesn't feel um, dry or academic in any way. Like it's... Right. It's just, it's a very difficult, really unique tone of a film.
2: Right. And of course the true tragedy that the guy really doesn't even take an L at the end. Yeah,
1: you know? he's fine. <laughs> he's fine.
0: Yeah. He, he literally like, he he just has to like mourn a bit and then it's just like, well, just, uh, just like changing out a spark plug or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah new,
1: new wife. My wife said uh,
2: Dudes Rock 2020 or Dudes Rock 1965,
0: <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, I will say that I I just looked him up again to get a better look at him. And uh, now I can't get Bill Hader out of my head. Right. So it'll never,
1: you'll never see this film the same way. It's just proto Barry. (laughs) It's the first episode of Barry. It's
0: like if I ever meet Bill Hader and we're like, you piece of shit, you shouldn't (laughs) have cheated on her.
1: (laughs) Now she's dead.
2: okay so let's um, let's move into talking a little bit about vagabond um, ironically in 1985 we're jumping forward 20 years in time ironically um, I read this was like kind of a minor box office hit uh, in France uh, in the 80s and I know John you really like this movie um, I don't know Lindsay tell us about tell us about Vagabond and what, what draws you to this one
1: so it it was a hit in France um, I think, I don't think it was the only film of hers to turn a profit, but I think it was the only film of hers to turn like a significant profit, which is first of all saying something about, um, you know, how she kind of conducted her career. So we're leaping ahead like 20 years here. Um, But she just as a side note to that too, that there was a criterion interview with her um, towards the end of her life where she I think the quote was actually like, I, I didn't have a career, I made films. And there's a big difference between that. And at every turn, you know, when she, there were a lot of moments when she could have gone commercial. Um, she was out in California for several years with Jacques Demy, like, after the success of Umbrellas of Cherbourg and Hollywood kind of like fetted him and tried to give him a contract and it just like did not work out. But they spent um, sometime in the late 60s and early 70s in Hollywood, which there's all sorts of weird, you know. I think in the beaches of Agnes they get into that a bit, but like she became friends with Harrison Ford before he was famous, like all these weird little connections that she made out there. But there was an opportunity for her to also make Hollywood films. Um, she was going to make a film for Columbia and they wouldn't give her final cut. And she walked away and was basically like, well, I don't care then. And so I think leading up to Vagabond, there's all these moments where she has chosen her own path once again, and kind of chosen to do something unconventional rather than make money and appeal to a certain audience. So it, in a lot of ways, it was a surprise I think to her and to people who followed her that suddenly this film like, you know, won awards and um, had this kind of mainstream recognition. And it's a lot heavier, I think, than a lot of her other films, too. It's probably the darkest, both in tone and in the cinematography. It just, it's a very muddy film in a lot of ways. And it begins with the death of the main character, too, um, who is, you know, literally lying dead in a ditch is how the movie begins. So you know... You know you're in for um, some real shit when you turn this one on, but I I think this film is also a kind of like mid-period version of her blending the documentary and fiction aesthetics. Like it is essentially a fiction film, but she were piecing together the identity of this main character um, through the people that have met her in sort of her last days alive when she was just hitchhiking and living um, off the road and, and kind of meeting all these random strangers along the way. Um, And Varda shoots those. I think that we actually hear her voice, like quote unquote interviewing the characters to kind of fill in um, the, the portrait of her that we get, which is almost in a weird way, kind of like a citizen Kane (laughs) type format, but you know, it I think in a lot of ways too, it's it's another movie about um freedom versus confinement within like the domestic and social sphere as a woman. Like she's this character is we learned that she had a job as a secretary and was like, fuck that. I don't want no one is <laughs> right. my boss. And so she kind of chooses this really um this this very untethered life, but becomes so untethered that it becomes tragic and and not a way that she can kind of sustain herself. Um, so really, I mean, I love this movie a lot. It's very sad to, and like perhaps her most conventionally, like, I don't want to say heartstring tugging, because that feels more manipulative than it is, but it's, you know, it's not, one that you put on for like whimsy and lightness the way you do um, some of her later films. So I'm right. curious what you guys felt about it too.
0: Well, it's interesting having that context that you gave, because I think it's very fitting that this is the movie she made after getting out of that situation, given the subject matter, mm. because it's uh, it obviously matches up going your own way, not living life by any set of rules. And the first thing that that kind of hit me was the fact that she does start off and and we get our first view of the protagonist of this film dead in a ditch mm-hmm. and whenever you do that i feel like the director telling the story already has a hurdle because you now have to make me care enough about this character because i know how they end up so so choosing that it was very it's just a very interesting it was a very interesting uh choice for the story and then The interviews that take place throughout, I thought were really cool and kind of made it feel more like it made me care even more. It made everything be heavier than it would have been without it. This is uh, far and away my favorite of the five. It was so good. I I actually want to watch it again. Uh, I, I enjoyed it, it. It kind of, it, it romanticized it a bit, but then it kind of really had to back off because you can't romanticize it very much when you already know that she ends up the way she did. Mm. So there's not a lot of romanticization of the lifestyle, but I I have like a soft spot for, for stories like that. I love like, you know, people that don't go by the rules and live their own life. And she goes from one area to another and getting these odd jobs and meeting people. And she's just such an interesting character. And it made it all the more sad obviously knowing that yeah your story no matter what you do for the next hour and a half you're going to be dead in a ditch and uh yeah i don't know it was just it was it was very i agree with you it's is definitely of, of the i think i've seen eight of her movies now it's definitely the heaviest of a movie that i've seen from her
2: yeah this was this was um i'm I'm still woefully underseen uh on some of her work but this is one of the ones along with uh, with Cleo and some of the later documentaries that I had seen years ago and rewatching it, it's uh, boy, it's, you know, even taking away the kind of Agnes Varda and thinking about her filmography. This is just like one of those classic, like just miserable list, uh, like <laughs> like art movies where you're just like, oh, Jesus Christ, man, this is, you know, some of this is brutal, but I don't know. Rewatching it this time, it's just um man, it's just so powerful. And so um, there's this David Thompson quote that I love um, where he says, Vagabond, the tracking of a fierce, willful outcast set more surely on a path to death than Cleo ever contemplated. Vagabond burns in the memory, lucid and unsentimental. And uh, I love that. I mean, that's exactly what it is, just kind of lucid and unsentimental. And and definitely, I think her, uh, her darkest work. You know, it's uh, like you said, it's not a fun, it's not a fun Sunday afternoon watch, but no. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's really powerful.
1: Yeah. And I think it's another one where she's thinking formally of how to tell the story. Like I love sort of between the interviews, there are these long tracking shots of her just hitchhiking or, or walking down these, you know, increasingly cold Uh, landscapes like I think you really you really get a sense of the weather in this film in a way that feels really visceral like she you get why it would be so dangerous for her to continue this on like in the cold and like the final moments of her life just you really feel the elements in this way that she films it of just like how unpleasant that lifestyle must be um after a while and how much it must wear on you like especially over the winter um so it really it feels like her like earthiest movie too both in the tones of it and the yeah again I think the cinematography like comparing it to something like happiness which is all these vivid colors and then this is so brown and muddy and earthy but it still somehow is a Varda film like there there are through lines between these films that seem so disparate at the same time
2: well speaking of uh formal daring um let's just jump into the last um the last kind of section of her career and we we kind of had focused on Beaches of Agnes but really i mean Um, I know all of us have seen multiple of her, her kind of later documentaries. Um, Specifically, I'm thinking of Gleaners and I, Beaches of Agnes and Faces Places. Uh, I haven't got a chance to watch her most recent one, Varda by Agnes yet. Um, But, uh, but yeah, Lindsay, what, what, uh, what are kind of your thoughts on her uh, developing into this? I'm, I'm always fascinated by how artists kind of mature in their later, in their later career when they kind of know that they're, you know, close to death. And especially because, like, some some artists treat it as really, like, um, an opportunity to give, like, one big final statement. Like, I'm thinking of David Bowie's Black Star. Mm. Um, And then some, you know, some artists, uh, like, say, Bob Dylan, for example, just, like, kind of go into, like, this this comfort zone where they're just kind of fucking around doing Frank Sinatra covers for, like, three hours. Um, Yeah. So I don't know. I don't. I don't know where uh, Agnes Varda falls into that uh, to that uh, dichotomy. I guess, but I don't know. Can you talk to us a little bit about her uh, her late uh, career from basically 2000 on?
1: Yeah, I think it was. I think she was definitively not doing Frank Sinatra covers in her <laughs> definitely, in definitely. her third act. I mean, I think the the sort of final third of her um, career, or even or her filmmaking, I should say she said I do not have a career Um, is really remarkable to me and maybe a big reason why like you kind of said her legacy within the past decade has kind of I think in some ways eclipsed um, the filmmakers who were not as prolific or as um, just vital in the last decades of their work she really stayed open to a lot of aspects of innovation like I think one of the most famous scenes um, of this period of her work or maybe any of her films is um, when she's sort of learning to shoot digital in the Gleaners and I and has this portable dv camera and is literally shooting her own hand and the wrinkles in her hand and both reveling in the fact that like, look ma, one-handed shot. Like, I can shoot my own hand and hold the camera with the other one because this camera is so light and portable. And literally putting that sense of discovery and, like, technical joy into the film. But it's also this meditation on mortality. Like, she... So Jacques Demy dies in 1990. Um, She, you know, is very... I think her work from then on becomes really focused on mortality and aging, and um, you know how film can kind of communicate that process in a way that other art forms can't, and and that's what I find so remarkable about these awesome movies and Beaches of Agnes in particular because it's sort of this career retrospective that she films <laughs> while she's still alive, and I think you know, of almost anyone else making this film that is literally just about herself and her life ostensibly and her filmmaking, like to make this without feeling narcissistic or like it's super navel-gazy is like remarkable. And I think this film um, never feels like that for me. It's really open-hearted and generous and ends up being about the people around her and, um, more, more so than even herself by the end. Um, there's a great quote that I think she says in this film where she talking about one of the films she made in the seventies saying that, um, chance was her first assistant, (laughs) that she was always kind of open to, you know, not overly scripting, especially these documentaries in the later aspect, they have a kind of digressive nature to them, but, then they also somehow circle around to saying something cohesive too um and I think, yeah, just that quality of openness and discovery, not being afraid of new technologies or the sort of younger assistance that she so explicitly highlights in these films um, is really inspiring just. On any level, like beyond filmmaking, she was she was right. not afraid. You know, she was. I think she was eighty when Beaches of Ennis Friendly came out, and you know, you see someone who's not afraid of the new technology or the upcoming generations. She's sort of has this sense of wonder about it that is at the same time mixed with mourning the dead, mourning her youth um, in ways that are really poignant but balancing that out with um just seeming really psyched about um <laughs> the present and the future
2: yeah it's a, it makes me think of and i know godard has been putting stuff out you know for um f- you know for the, throughout the 21st century but i think of the vitality of something like the image book and it's like I, you know i i liked you know film socialism but like where was this vitality like you could have kept, you could have been doing this for like 20 years. Yeah. You know? Like it's, uh, I don't know. It's unusual to, to sustain the, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. I used to work at a nursing home and like this, this maybe sounds awful, but like old people are tired, you know, like <laughs> yeah. they're tired of living. Like <laughs> it's just like, it, it gets to be too much. And like to have this much, not just vitality. I mean, it'd be amazing if someone 80 years old, you know, I don't know like ran a marathon or like, you know, some shit like that. But like, not just to have this much like physical activity, but to have like this creative energy, like right up until, you know, 90 years old. I mean, it's just, uh, it's astonishing, honestly. I don't know. Maybe that's offensive on some level to say, but like it, I don't know. I just think it's, I think it's miraculous. Um, John, what did you think about beaches of Agnes?
0: Um, well, I think you've now uh, ostracized all of our elderly listeners. So <laughs> thanks for that. Um, I, uh, you know, she, Agnes Varda was a huge blind spot for me up until about three or four months ago. So it's been really fun kind of just watching her films. And Gleaners and I still, I think, is my favorite of all the ones I've watched. There's something about that documentary that just really struck a chord. This one, Strikes a different chord, and, and Lindsay, I like what you said about the fact that she she is she mourns like uh, there were certain aspects of beaches that it was very depressing. Like she's mourning these lost moments, she's mourning these lost people. You know, time always wins. That was her big thing, and and the gleaners and I is addressing time. And one thing she really does that you pointed out that I like is she's she's also. Giving you the other side, and in this in this documentary, she's giving you the fact that yeah, this shit kind of sucks, and it sucks that he's not here, and it sucks that you know time has has crushed everything, and I'm older, and I have to deal with this, but I'm still going to be present, and I'm still going to accept what's going on right now, and be happy and live with what I have, and I think that that's that's kind of the the other the other side of it that when people try to like capture you know the loss of of a of a loved one or the loss of time in general etc cetera, etc cetera. they don't really do a good enough job of of capturing the present as well and being like we're well, we'll st- we're still here like and there are other loved ones that are still here etc cetera, etc cetera. and i really just it, it was a beautiful documentary it was uh it, it was just really well done and she is beyond brave if i am that brave at 80 i mm-hmm. will consider that a huge victory
2: yeah, I mean just filled to the fucking brim with life and vim and vigor. Um yeah, I don't know, just incredible. What about what about faces places? That's um I don't know why, but I I'm particularly attached to that one, maybe even more so than Cleaners and I and Beaches of Agnes. What are your um And frankly, I'm blown away. Like imagine imagine Jean-Luc Godard co-directing a movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, at I ninety, or, like come on, like it's you know that says all you need to know about about um, Agnes Varda. But I don't know, what do you think about Faces Places? I, I love it. I don't know. I really yeah. Don't
1: like I I like it a lot. I I think it feels almost in a way like a sequel to Beaches of Agnes, and mm-hmm. you know, co-directed with the French artist Jr., um, which I think something really interesting that circles back to the point Court is she. Also in that film, she her first film, she credits, uh, you know, it says it's directed by Anya Svarda and the, the people of the town that she's filming. She actually credits them as co-directors on that film. Oh, so there I was always that. kind of this generosity of credit that I think in some ways, um, you know, belies what we think of as like the auteur sure. idea She was. she's very open and generous and like even in Beaches of Agnes I love the scene in the beginning where she's setting up all these mirrors on the beach and she actually turns the mirrors um, on her assistants so that they can have these sort of like visual credits in the film so we can see who's helped her film it she tries to do it with the cameraman and I think like can't get the right angle with him Um, but there's always this kind of like plurality and generosity about her films that they're so even the ones that are you know quite literally about her and her experiences they also feel like they're about the people around her too and and the places around her and I think Faces Places is you know (laughs) quite literally in the title um has that spirit too and I think that one for me like that's the one that makes me the parts about her aging are like really sad to yeah. watch, especially now that she's gone and knowing how um, close that was to the end of her life. I think she was 87 when she filmed that one, which again, to co-direct a film um, that is then <laughs> nominated for an Oscar um, at 87 is remarkable. and and to just let someone else take some of the reins on that too, and be open enough to someone else's vision that you trust them to co-direct. I think I, what I really like about that film is the way that their perspectives clash sometimes. Like mm-hmm. she doesn't think all of his jokes are funny. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. tells him that and has like a little spiciness about her that that feels also really um, quintessentially Varda. But yeah, I think. I mean, I just, I, the whole final chapter of her filmography that I think begins with Gleaners and I, and goes up to Faces Places and Varda by Agnes, which is pretty similar to Beaches of Agnes too, like, but they all feel like, um, of a piece that is this really remarkable kind of singular reflection on old age and, and staying vital in old age that, you know, we think of, I think one of the reasons why the French new wave is still such a touchstone is it captures this essence of like youth and precociousness and things Mm -hmm. like that, that we all, you know, as so many cultures want to sort of cling onto and um, there's a lot fewer documents of, you know, staying vital and staying like, curious and open and human, um, into your seventies and eighties that that's to me, maybe the most valuable thing she leaves behind is like, if I had to choose, um, is that final kind of block of her career?
2: I completely agree. Yeah. It's, it may be controversial to say, it, but yeah, if I, if I had to choose between, you know, the sixties movies and, and this, the last 20 years, I definitely would. Um, just because they're so meaningful. And, the, you know, I'm not going to spoil it, but the fucking end of Faces Places.
1: Oh, boy. Yeah. I,
2: you know, I just come on, man. Like, Godard, buddy, you're on the silver screen video watch list, pal. <laughs> you know,
1: I, I don't know, man. It's, come on the pod.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on the pod so I can berate you for being mean to Agnes Varda. Yes, um,
1: making her cry. Perfect, oh, my but...
2: God. Ugh, I can't even. That makes me so mad. Um, okay, Lindsay, last question. Uh, we've kept it away for way too long. There's 22 uh, Agnes Varda movies on the Criterion Channel. What is an underrated Agnes Varda movie that, uh, let's say, you've seen these five? Let's say you've seen, uh, um, you know, Gleaners and I, maybe Faces Places. What's what's an underrated Varda gem uh, that our audience and we should watch?
1: I man, I could pick like 10 of them, but I think I'm gonna say. Murmurs, which is, or murals, with her documentary about the murals of Los Angeles from, I think it's from the early 80s, okay. um, really kind of proto Faces Places. And like I would say, like, if you liked Faces Places, you'll love <laughs> your murals. <mirrors. laughs> um, and it's, you know, we didn't touch much on her. Los Angeles films but there are quite a few of them and and quite a few shorts that are really I think amazing kind of like outsider perceptions of the U.S. and of California in particular and I think this one does a really good job of it, it feels like a bridge between the sort of early documentaries and the later essayistic portraits but it's and it's a really awesome time capsule of LA in the early '80s too. So that I would recommend that one. And also, um, there's a she made a ton of great shorts too, that are I think most of them are on Criterion. And I the, I think the place to start there is Uncle Yanko, which is just an absolutely delightful like 20 minutes of film if you're ever just having a bad day and want want it brightened up. Um, uncle Yanko is it's her eccentric hippie uncle who lives on a houseboat in California and her meeting him for the first time. Like that's, okay. that's all you need to know.
2: Well, I haven't had a bad day in a while. So, uh, yeah, so, not uh, <laughs> this whole year. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think I'll be that anytime soon. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, not to typecast you in the, in the silver screen video, uh, uh, pantheon here, but, um, we might, this, both of those movies you mentioned are in the, um, Eclipse series, uh, Agnes Varda in California. Yes. Uh, so, uh, maybe we'll have to have you back and, uh, and dive through this little box set here because yeah, these, these sound really interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, I would, I would love that.
2: Yeah. Okay. Uh, folks, that's the, uh, that's the Agnes Varda episode. Anya Varda. Um, we're not picky here. You can say no. whatever you want. I think I uh, speak for all of us when I say that Scorsese has it right. He calls her one of the gods of cinema. Which I think is probably about the highest praise you can get from someone like Scorsese, who's seen everything.
0: And let's remember, Scorsese's never wrong, so it is. So never. That's
2: true. So yeah, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us on this uh, Varda journey. Um, you got anything to plug? Uh, Twitter account, anything like that?
1: I mean, not particularly. I'm I'm on Twitter. I'm <laughs> writing a lot of things. Um, but,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Just about anything uh, Lindsay writes is, is worth reading, guys. So definitely check her out. Look her up on Twitter. Uh, Muckrake. Do you know this website? I just discovered this recently. It just like keeps track of everybody's work.
1: Oh, that's um, so useful.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's like some kind of bot. Like I, I don't think anybody actually runs it. I think it just prints anything like under people's names. Whatever. This that's is cool neither the time nor the place for it but uh yeah check out Lindsay's work she's a great uh, great critic and uh, it was a real pleasure having you on Lindsay.
1: Thank you. I did write an essay about Varda like 2 years ago around Faces Places that that might be something not timely but relevant to plug. It was for The Ringer so
2: Oh yeah yeah The Ringer yeah I
1: remember up. that one.
2: Um yeah we'll we'll definitely link to it in the profile and uh and uh yeah absolutely well thanks for thanks for coming on Lindsay. we really appreciate it
1: yeah it was fun thank you
0: yeah thanks for stopping by and yeah like like jacob said we'll put everything in the show notes so you guys can find uh Lindsay and where she writes and, and read all of her stuff so yeah that'll be in the show notes so uh thanks for stopping by Lindsay, and uh we enjoyed it thanks